We're continuing our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Today I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Nate Himes. I serve as one of the elders of this church. Earlier this summer, uh, I preached from Psalm 133 on the gift of unity. When I started that sermon, I prefaced it with an acknowledgement that uh, I know that there's a lot of pain in the room uh, surrounding unity within a church. A lot of people had just come to this church from other churches because of disunity or other issues. I also recognize that just a few weeks prior to that sermon, our church as a whole became became aware of um, some unity that, disunity that had existed among the elders. I just recognized that there was a lot of pain because of that. This passage, again today, touches on some of those same issues. And I am aware that there's still a lot of pain that people are experiencing, either, again, from things I've experienced in other churches, or from this church, or even perhaps from me. This passage today is an interesting one, though. On the surface, it might seem like it's a church leader telling the people of the church to not judge him because it's not their job and that God will eventually find him worthy of his praise. And though that is actually not an incorrect statement per se, there's a lot more depth to this, a lot of helpful and good things for all of us. It is God's word, after all. I believe Paul's aim in these five verses is actually to remind the church that their ultimate leader is God, not any human man, human authority. He also has a similar message for us about church leaders, that they are to seek the affirmation of their master alone. We then receive a call to refrain from judging, which requires some nuance and humble consideration. And then at the very end, we get a surprise promise of the reward of commendation on the last day. So let's pray together that God would give us exactly what he knows we need from this text. Please pray with me. Lord, may this message be manna from heaven to us, a nourishment that no human could supply. Help us to hear you rightly. By your spirit, help us to embrace the spiritual wisdom and reject and discard worldly wisdom. Ultimately, Lord, we ask that you help us to see and savor your son, Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. So before I jump into chapter 4, I want to give us a little context for what Paul has been talking about so far in this letter to the Corinthians. Back in chapter 1, Paul made an appeal to the Corinthians that they would all agree with one another and cease from the divisions they created among themselves by boasting over which church leader they were following. I follow Paul. I follow Paulos. I follow Cephas. He says in verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is this quarreling among you. You say who you follow, as I just said. But he goes on and says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then for a couple chapters, he expounds on this and the foolishness of their boasting and their earthly wisdom. And he summarizes his point so far at the end of chapter 3, which we looked at last week. And he says, so then let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. So Paul is addressing these divisions that have been fueled by their boasting over which particular leader in the church they each follow. That brings us up to chapter 4. And the first point, which is church, rightly esteem your leaders. Let's look at verse 1 together. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. What does Paul mean by this? What he's trying to point out to them is that they, as church leaders, are servants of a greater master. There's Christ and then there's the servants of Christ below them. He does not want them to put their hope and trust in them. Servants are below the master. They have less authority. They have less credibility. And even the best of spiritual leaders will let you down. He's wanting to remind them again, do not regard us as, a, as your main spiritual leaders. We are below Christ. We are his servants. Do not put your hope in us. But he also does not want them to esteem them too lightly. To not disregard them. He goes on and he says that we are also stewards of the mysteries of God. This word stewards means that they are guardians. They are like household guardians over the estate or business. Jesus in many of his parables uh, referred to this this system where uh, a master of a vineyard or of a business or a home would set things in order and entrust all that was precious to him to a steward. He would then leave for a period of time and then come back to judge that steward. Were they faithful to what I entrusted to them? That's what he has in mind here. The leaders of the church have been entrusted by God, put in him, put in place by him for the good of the church. And that needs to be recognized in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So Paul is saying, 
We are not your true master, but he has given us an authority over the church that needs to be observed and recognized. He highlights that their stewardship is specifically over the mysteries of God. We sang about that a few minutes ago. What are these mysteries? Paul explained this earlier in the letter. It is the gospel. It is the message of Christ crucified to save sinful men. A secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And it's this wisdom, this ministry that seems like folly to human wisdom, but is in fact the power and wisdom of God. The church leaders are primarily responsible for the preaching and proclamation of this gospel to you and for you, for the good of your souls. Paul's calling us to regard appropriately our leaders for these reasons. Let's move on to verses 2 through 4, where we see that church leaders are to seek the affirmation of their true master. Verses 2 through 4. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Church leaders, we are to seek the affirmation of our true master. Paul is acknowledging that as a steward, he and other church leaders will be held accountable for their labor in the gospel and care of the church. But he wants the Corinthians to know that he is not ultimately concerned with their assessment or judgment of him. He says, it is a very small thing. Or in other words, it's not a big deal to me if I am judged by you. Now he isn't saying that he doesn't care what they think at all. That's not the picture of godly leadership that Paul paints throughout his New Testament letters. He also isn't saying that church leaders are above being held accountable by the church. I'll address that more in a few minutes. What he means is further clarified in his next statement. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. His point is that because God is his master and judge, his main focus is on God's assessment of his ministry. And as a result, with the church in Corinth or in Ephesus or Philippi or Rome or anywhere else, whatever they think about his ministry is, is of little consequence to him, ultimately. He knows where his calling comes from. He knows what he has been tasked to do. He knows what will come. Oh, he knows who will come to measure his faithfulness to that calling. And he is locked in and blocking out these distractions. And I know I wish I was more like him in this regard. I struggled with this when I was writing the sermon. One of the ways that my heart is bent and misshapen is that I long to be respected and trusted by other people way too much. I care way too much about what other people think of me. And I have to actively rebuke it in myself and invite others to hold me accountable to that. Help me with that. Stepping into eldership in the last few months has only given me more opportunities to work on this. This isn't just a lesson for church leaders, though. It's a universal lesson for us, right? We are all servants of Christ. 
He is the one true master and judge over all of us. So why is it so important for us to believe this? It's because whoever we aim to please, we end up following, right? If you aim to please a parent, you end up following him or her. If you want to please your coach, you end up following her. If you want to please your friends, your pastor, or your congregation, you end up following them. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to please people. There's nothing wrong with, like, wanting people to, to think highly of you in that sense. Like, we're not looking to just, like, not care at all about that. But, church leader, there is nothing... Sorry, the problem comes with when what you think they like and want from you is inconsistent with what God wants from you. In that moment, you experience a test of your allegiance. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 6.24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So elders and leaders of this church specifically, your stewardship did not come from the people sitting in this room. It came from God. Your calling didn't even come from your own heart. So whether you or anyone else here thinks you're doing a great job or a lousy job, it's not of ultimate importance. What does God say about you? He is your true master. And in the end, his is the only voice that will matter. Let's look back to the text starting in verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul concludes this section with an imperative command. Therefore, In light of what I've just been writing you, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. In other words, let the true master do the judging. In verses 2 and 3, the Greek word translated into English as judge is often translated as examine in a lot of translations. So it would be like, it is a little thing that I would be examined by you. I don't need, I do not even examine myself. But here in verse 5, there's a different Greek word used. And it carries the connotation of making a determination or separating things out. Jesus describes the day of judgment when he will return and separate out sheep from goats. Right? Separating out a distinction a determination being made by people or of people. So though Paul doesn't necessarily have judging someone's salvation in mind here, he is talking about refraining from making a serious determination or drawing a conclusion about someone. He isn't saying that the people in the church should just shut their mouths and be quiet when they have concerns about their leadership as if They were above that. We know this is true. There's so many passages that speak to this. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20 is a good one. 
Paul writes to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So clearly, in Corinthians, Paul is not calling for some kind of good old boy club where pastors don't have to be held accountable. What he is instructing them, or what is he instructing them to abstain from? It's the difference between examination and determination. It's kind of hard to parse out, I think, but as I reflected on what happens in my own heart, it became a little bit clearer for me. When I judge someone, I'm basically determining that I can disregard them. Like, I I give myself permission to not care about their feelings or their reputation. I give myself a green light to be angry and bitter towards them. I absolve myself from responsibility to make things right with them. I can give up on them. I can stop caring about them. Now, this isn't like a conscious determination, like, oh, therefore, because of this, I can do this. It's just what happens. It's just how I start treating them. And usually it's just in my head. Because as I stand here, I'm not aware of anyone that I persistently feel that way about. But I know I can judge people like that in my mind for short periods of time. And it's still wrong and harmful. For example, you might be able to relate to this. Sometimes I just indulge in these vain imaginations where I kind of play out scenarios in my mind. Right? Like I've been offended by someone or I felt judged by someone or something like that. And I start playing out a conversation. What I would say to them, how I believe or know in my mind that they would respond, what they would say back, and this back and forth goes on in my head. Sometimes my physical temperature rises. Again, it's all in my head. And what I was doing was judging this person in my mind, right? Because in order to invent these fictional conversations, I had to assume something about their hearts and their motives their actions. And in these imagined situations, I'm generally assuming the worst, not the best of them. Now, I've confessed this tendency enough times to know that it is fairly common. I'm not alone in this. And I've also done it enough that I've learned to catch myself a lot more quicker than I used to when I was younger, where I could go weeks, maybe even, you know, months carrying a burden or a grudge or this judgment towards someone. Now the Lord helps me work through this much more quickly. I want to share what that looks like practically. Maybe it would be helpful for you. So first, I have to confess this and repent of it. Lord, I am sorry for judging this person and slandering them in my own heart. Please forgive me. Help me to forgive them. And help me to give them the benefit of the doubt. Lord, help me to work out, help me to work through X, Y, Z. Bitterness, unforgiveness, etc. towards this person. And then the last part is show me what else I need to do. Frequently, it's just praying that on my own. Because it's just something in my head. I just need to deal with it in my own heart between the Lord. But also frequently, I get the sense that I need to do something else. Because either the Lord's requiring me of it because I can't seem to shake the judgment So the next step is this. And several people in this room 
have experienced this from me. I have to go confess this to that person and generally face to face. It can be very humbling, especially when the judgmental thoughts would come as a complete surprise to the person. They had no idea I was upset with them. But I'll tell you this, as far as I know and can remember, it has always been fruitful. I have never regretted taking that step. The vast majority of the time, the person either confirms that my fears and doubts were actually completely unfounded. Or, maybe there was some truth to it. And then they are very quick to repent. I didn't realize that. I'm sorry that I didn't realize that was impacting you. But a lot of times it's just my own sin and me confessing that um, actually brings out thankfulness from them for taking that step. What happens in the process is that it, it humbles me, it brings things into the light, and rather than allowing me to write them off and disregard their value and feelings, it brings me into greater proximity with them and therefore concern and love for them. And the sooner it happens, the better. Let me bring us back to this passage now. Paul instructs the Corinthians to withhold from judgment. Not from holding people accountable for sin, but making unconfirmed judgments in our hearts towards them, and church leaders in particular. Why? First, it is not their responsibility. Paul and the other leaders are servants and stewards commissioned by God. So God is going to hold them accountable. It is his job. The judgment seat is his throne. And it would be pretty awkward if when the Lord returns to execute judgment, that he finds one of us sitting in his seat with his gavel in our hand. Why else should we abstain from judging our church leaders, or anyone else for that matter? The answer is, we simply are not able to do it. What does God do when he comes? Let's pick it back up in verse 5. It says, He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. If we're being humble and honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we just do not see things as they really are. We cannot discern the motives of other people's hearts, at least not definitively. And so our ability to judge is limited and lacking. Yesterday, I was helping one of my boys in the bathroom. I could overhear from three rooms away the start of some arguing. I couldn't really hear what was being said. I just heard tones of voices and they started escalating. So I shouted a child's name, kind of in a questioning manner, hoping he would hear me and the arguing would stop. He didn't. It didn't. Their tones kept escalating and suddenly... The other brother was now crying and yelling. Cue me now yelling the first child's name, now with an exclamation mark and not a question mark at the end of it. Because I had determined that he was in the wrong and was purposely picking on his brother, and now I'm mad and frustrated, and pronouncing the consequence. It was sinful, because now there were two boys who were very upset and hurt. And I apologized, because as you could guess, he actually had done nothing wrong. 
I couldn't hear clearly what was going on. I certainly couldn't see what was going on. And though I think I know my kids' hearts pretty well, I didn't know what was going on in them right then. And when we judge others, whether they are church leaders or anyone else, we are doing so with the same limitations. If we're being real real with ourselves. So really, we can just trust the Lord with this and leave it to him. When God comes, we awkwardly hand him back the gavel and slip out of his chair. He will bring to light everything that is hidden, and it will be seen clearly. And he will even be able to disclose the purposes of the heart. Let's now look at how Paul concludes this thought in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Wait, let me say that again. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That is a gloriously surprising ending. Doesn't it feel a little unexpected to you? Weren't you expecting something like, then he will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then each one will get what's coming to them. This is not the way of our master. Our master is merciful. Paul envisions this future day as one when he and other faithful stewards will receive praise from God. And Peter shares this vision. We read that in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. He speaks to the elders. He says, I exhort you, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul and Peter, they know the men who are are leading these churches. In many cases, they personally commissioned them as elders or leaders. Paul had to hold Peter accountable at times. They know these are men who will mess it up, who will sin who will fall into conflicts over meaningless things, who will give into worldly pressures at times. They know what kinds of things they will face, trials and temptations, persecutions, sufferings, discouragements, disappointments. And yet, when they picture that future day when the Lord returns, they believe with great assurance that it will be a day when many will hear the commendation and praise from their God. And Christ, their chief shepherd, will himself adorn their heads with crowns of glory that will shine without dimming forever. It is a really surprising picture. And it makes that picture of getting caught sitting in the the judge's seat that much more horrific. Because not only will he excuse you, but then he's going to praise and honor those who you were judging. How is this possible? It's because our master is so merciful. And this is good news 
not just for pastors or missionaries or church leaders or people in quote-unquote full-time ministry. None of us will make it to the finish line on our own. Everyone will rightly be guilty of a life of sin and disobedience to our true master. Listen to how Paul started out this letter in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of, of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does this mean? It means that because of God's grace that was given to you when you put your hope in faith in your true Master, Jesus Christ, you were given everything you need to remain faithful to the end, at which point you will be declared guiltless because Jesus Christ has paid for every debt you owe for your disobedience along the way. So Christian, don't put your hope in your pastor or anyone else to save you. They are mere servants. Only Christ can save you. Church leader, don't look to please anyone else but Christ. His reward is the only one that will last. Leave judgment to God. Only he sees, sees things as they really are. But take heart. He is a merciful master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are glorious things. They are difficult things. They are things that are hard for us to believe. It is hard for us to imagine that day. To imagine your praise and commendation coming to us. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to rest our hope in you alone. We need your help in this, Lord. And Lord, help us not to judge one another or judge ourselves incorrectly. Help us to cling to the mystery of the gospel of Christ crucified for our sake. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.